invite you to open up. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 as, uh, as we continue our journey through uh, Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. As we take a look, you remember as we began chapter 2, we talked about sin's work in us. And the first, uh, first four verses lay out for us that concept of what we were, what we are without Christ. And you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses in sin, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. He lays out for us there in that beginning section of chapter 2, what sin does in us, how sin works in us, what it causes in us. And basically he lays out for us that man's not sick, man's dead. He needs a rebirth. He needs to be reborn. He needs to be born again. And that work of God that occurs, we see beginning for us right in verse 4. We talked about it last week. This is what we are apart from the Lord. And then that great phrase we talked about, but God. But God changes everything. But God does an incredible work in us. And as we focus today, we really want to focus on that. What is it now? Sin worked in us in the first three verses. But now as we come to to verse 4, we want to see what God works for us. What God works for us and how he works in our life. And the first thing we see is that God loved us. Take a look. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were yet sinners christ died for us this is the evidence of the love of god working in our life and if we take a look at uh, at john in in first john chapter four if you guys want to turn there with me first john chapter four we can see this this concept of the love of god and how the love of god is really ultimately poured out in our life but God, we were dead, but God loved us. But God met us in that place. First John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this, the love of God is manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The love of God, but God, the first thing that God does, the first thing that God works for us is this love and that love of God, that part of the attribute of God, which is his love is poured out in us or to us in a couple of ways. We recognize it or we see it as grace and mercy, grace and mercy, that mercy and grace that God bestows upon you and I by giving that greatest gift that he ever gave in his son. Mercy, not getting what I deserve. That's mercy. Grace, getting what I don't deserve. 
Not getting what I do deserve and getting what I don't deserve. That's what the Lord God bestows on us or pours on us as he says here in verse 4. With this great love with which he has loved us is rich in mercy. You see, God doesn't desire that any would perish. Isn't that what the scripture tells us? It says he desired that no one would perish. People say, they, the, the, the scripture lays out for us, in the end time scoffers would come saying, where's the promise coming of the Lord? People are always talking about the return of, of Jesus Christ. Where is it? And the Lord said, well, they're going to come and they're going to say that, but I want you to know that I'm long-suffering and merciful. I'm full of grace. And I want to see every person who is willing, every person have an opportunity to turn and receive that free gift that Jesus Christ offers us. Because he's dead. Man's dead without him. So this great love that he bestows upon us is rich in mercy, rich in grace. He wants us to recognize that that work is occurring as we take a look at the salvation that Jesus Christ is offering Through this great love with which he has loved us. That love is clearly seen in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you and I on Calvary. That's the love of God made manifest. That he gave his only begotten son to be a propitiation or the substitute sacrifice for us. See, we're born guilty. Born guilty, we're born sinners, we sin from the womb. From the womb, we sin. Have you ever tried to teach a child to do wrong? I never had to. I never had to teach my kids how to do one wrong thing. I never had to teach them how to lie. They had that ability right away. How about that cute little one or two-year-old that you say, now, don't touch that lamp. Yeah? How's that work for you? Because they're so obedient, right? They have to learn sin. No, man, that sin is working inside of them. It's already there. So Jesus Christ became our propitiation, born without sin, lived a sinless life. The only one not guilty of God's demand, God's demand, righteous God. He demands, be perfect as I am perfect. That's what God says. But I can't be perfect. I'm already stained in sin. So he sent his only begotten son who was perfect, who is perfect. Who lived perfect. And he became my substitute. He said I will bear. The wrath that is for you. As a child of wrath. Born dead. And I'll pave the way. So that you can be made alive. So that you can be made alive. The love of God. That's the first thing we see. God working in us. He's going to working for us. He's working that love. The love of God. And then scripture goes on to tell us. Not only this love is he working for us. But even when we were dead in trespasses. In verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in trespass. That means people weren't asking. Nobody was looking for that opportunity to, for, for, for God to bring this sacrifice. We were living in sin. We were dead. We were lost. And he has, working for us, made us alive. He loved us and he made us alive. He said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nick, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. 
Period. Except a man be born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? And the Lord said, Nick, it's, it's not, I'm not talking about what's born of the flesh is born of the flesh. What's born of the spirit is born of the spirit. You need to be born again. Your spirit is dead, spiritually dead, unable to understand the word of God. The Bible says that natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit for they are spiritually discerned. The pages of scripture aren't opened up. That part of us is dead, but he, Jesus Christ, our God and savior has loved us and made us alive. He's given us that life. He's poured out that life upon us. He's opened up that opportunity. But how did he make us alive? He made us alive together in Christ. Together in Christ. He makes us alive. Listen, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Scripture lays out for us, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Spiritual resurrection takes place when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's Jesus' words. In John chapter 5, He who hears my word and believes. That spiritual resurrection that we have, that being made alive, puts us into Christ. It doesn't mean we just live. It means now I live in Him. Now I'm found in Christ Jesus. Remember we talked that that Paul, in his, in his epistles, he has this phrase, in Christ Jesus. He's going to repeat 169 times what that's all about. It speaks of satisfaction. It speaks of having everything that we need, everything that we're asking for, everything that's missing. We're going to find in that relationship, in Christ Jesus. And now he says, you've been made alive by the great love with which God has loved you. You're made alive, given life, the ability to understand, to see, and that life is found in him. And then what Jesus said, I came to give you life, and life how? More abundantly. More abundantly. He has made us alive, given us that spiritual resurrection, and sharing with us that life and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, he goes on to tell us, not only this, not only did he love us, not only has he made us alive together with him in Christ, but in verse 6, He says, and he has raised us up together. He's raised us up. We're raised up. We're not raised from the dead and left in the graveyard. We're not just standing around like like so many others who were given the opportunity to live again. But we are raised from the dead and sit in the heavenlies with him. And now the scripture lays out for us, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. There's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. We're already seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We already experience all that God has for us, all that God desires for us. He, our physical position may be here on earth, but spiritually, we're in Christ in the heavenlies with him. Seated at the right hand of the Father, the blessings of God being poured out in our life. Already he has raised us up together, not just made us alive, not just loved us, but lifted us up. Lifted us up out of the, the, the muck and the mire, out of the miry clay and raised us up to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be there in the glory of the Father, to enjoy the glory of the Father in him. We are loved, made alive, raised up. 
And then in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So how long has he done this for? For the ages to come. What's that a nice way of saying? Forever. Forever. Forever he has made us alive. He has loved us. He has raised us up forever how long does everlasting life last forever huh yeah you guys get it it's an eternal thing that god is working in us this love that he's given us this being made alive brought forth from the dead being raised up into the heavenly places it lasts forever Remember as we began looking at the book of Ephesians, we said that there comes times for you and I that we have to learn to count our blessings and what we have and not what we don't have. Staying focused on the pure and lovely, the things that are of good report, to understand that we have amazing things in Christ. And when we look at the book of Ephesians, it's going to break down that way. The first three chapters deal with our wealth in Christ. What we have in him, what we experience in him, that though we were dead, he has loved us. And he has made us alive. And he has raised us up into the heavenlies with him. One day we'll experience that physically. But for now, spiritually, we sit with Christ in the heavenly places for the ages to come that we might be trophies of his grace. That we might be examples of his mercy and his kindness. Of the great love with which he has loved us forever. As we look at these first three chapters in these areas, we need to see. Some people, you guys probably know them. Some people, all they can see is what's wrong with anything. You know, that's a part of me I hate. I don't like being Eeyore-like. Oh, oh, oh. Every once in a while, I catch myself doing it. And somebody will call me a dream crusher or some comment to that nature. And I know I'm being negative. All I'm seeing is a negative. And I I don't like that. That's why God brought in my life Kathy. Because she's the polar opposite. She is Pollyanna. (laughs) Everything is is good. Everything is great. Everything. So when, when I come home and she's having an off day, man, let me tell you, it's bad. I don't have that balancing factor. I can spiral real fast. She's that positive, has that positive outlook. And I'm reminded as I study the book of Ephesians, man, I need to consider the wealth that I have in Christ. The blessings that I have, that I've been chosen, he told us in chapter 1. That I've been, that I've been given everlasting life that i've been redeemed that i've been forgiven that i've been saved that though i was dead he loved me that though i was dead he made me alive that though i was dead he raised me up into the heavenlies that we would remember where we come from because remembering where we come from is very important especially in terms of reaching out to people who need to know jesus christ We need to know Him. We need to understand the blessings that God has poured out in our life. The things that He's done for us. And that these things are eternal. Forever. But then look. We want to look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. Listen, the reason why this is so important is because what Paul is saying is, your salvation doesn't depend on you. That's good news. That's good news. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. Your salvation is a free gift from Almighty God. That God so loved the world he gave. Gave his only begotten son to us. That we might understand by grace you have been saved. What's grace? The natural outpouring of the love of God. For God is love. For God is love. And we see that love in this grace. Getting what we don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What is faith? Faith, guys, faith is where belief meets trust a lot of people struggle in the area of faith because they may even believe that jesus exists they may even believe that he is god but the book of james tells us the demons believe and they're not saved right it's where belief meets trust not only do i believe in jesus christ not only do i believe him but i trust him I trust him. That concept in the word faith is to not only believe, but to put one's weight into. To put one's hope into. To put everything that we are into this belief, this hope, this worldview, this concept that we're saved by grace through faith. Jean-Francois Gravelet was born in France, 1824. Sounds like a French guy, huh? He went by the stage name Blondin. In fact, if you go to London today, you will find a two streets intersection that is intersection of Niagara and Blondin. And I'm going to give you the rest of the story. That's because Blondin was a tightrope walker. He strung a tightrope 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls, 160 feet above the water. And he walked across. Pretty amazing. Considering that I get the weird feeling when I just go over the prime bridge. (laughs) Some of you guys do that too. I go down there and I watch those fellows base jump and I wish I could do it without doing it. I'm not a big guy on, on heights. In fact, when I was 30, huh, was when I was 30, I thought my life was over at 30. <laughs> now, I realize how foolish that was. But when I was 30, I went to Vegas and I said, you know, I'm 30 years old and, and uh, you know, things are, are fading fast for me now from here. Uh, I had no idea what I was talking about. And I went to uh, Circus Circus and I did the bungee jump. It was uh, 180 feet. 250 feet, ah, whatever. Anyways, I jump, it's wrapped around my ankles. And you came off and into water. It was incredible. Adrenaline pumping. You should have seen Kathy. Her, her face was all shriveled up when, she, when the elevator came to the top and opened up because the floor was open. You could see through it how far you were up in the air. And she didn't even want to come out of the elevator. She just kept a hand on the elevator. And I went out and they wrapped this thing around your ankles. 
And then you have to hop to the edge. Which, by the way, is way up there. Now, I don't want to sound like a big sissy, so I get that thing around my ankles and I hop to the edge. Now, it's a lot easier to do it here. Inside, I was screaming. <laughs> Outside, I was trying to look cool, you know. <clears throat> so, so Kathy goes back down, and then you stand there on the edge. And the guy goes, okay, brother, I'm going to count down from five. When I get to one, you fall. <sighs> you find out real quick whether or not you have faith in a bungee. Because when he gets to one, you're still standing there if you don't. But he has faith in the bungee and he'll kick you in the patunka and knock you clean off. <laughs> so off we went. I did the bungee jump and it was funny because I went to bungee jump and I thought how cool it would look in the video to go into water. Because you ever seen those guys bungee jump and go into water? It looks cool. You know, there's something they don't tell you about that. Yeah, your head goes in, but it's going to snatch you right back out. And if you think about it, your nose is pointed a bad way for that. (laughs) So my head went into the water, and I was thinking, that's so cool. And then it pulled me out, and water went up my nose so hard it come out my eyes and my ears. (laughs) And then... For the next like three bounces of the bungee, I was so afraid I was going back in the water again. I'm flailing around like a fish. All that to say, faith is where belief meets trust. Blondin, he he was 160 feet up over Niagara. And he walked across on a tightrope. He actually took a, a little camp stove out to the middle. And he set his camp stove up. And he cooked breakfast, made himself an omelet on this tightrope. And ate it. I mean, he was famous. He was, he was world famous for the crazy things that he would do. One time, he even went across with a wheelbarrow full of bricks. Another time, he got over to the other side and he told a guy, I'll take you across. And that guy grabbed a hold of him on his back and he carried him across. When he got to the other side... He said to a guy, hey, do you like to go? You saw I just brought that guy. Yeah, you believe I can take it? Yeah, I believe. You want to go? No. (laughs) I'm not going. It's a great example of faith. It's one thing to believe he can do it. It's one thing to have seen him do it in someone else's life. It's a totally different thing to trust for yourself. Right? Right? So when the Bible lays out for us this this idea, hey, we're saved by grace through faith. It's that idea where belief, understanding meets trust. That I, I trust the Lord. I put my weight into the Lord. I believe. I believe. For you are saved by grace. You have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says, and that not of yourselves. Now that phrase, that not of yourselves. In the Greek, that is what's called a neuter phrase. It means it doesn't have anything to do with the faith. It has something to do with the bigger picture, salvation. That's not of yourself. 
For I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, he is able to keep me. The whole concept that he's laying out for us in verse 8 is that it doesn't have anything to do with us. It's worked despite us. All we are responsible for is to receive him. Isn't that what the Gospel of John said? For as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To as many as believed in his name. We let our faith, belief, meet trust, and that is faith. And he does it all. He does it all. It has nothing to do with us. We don't have the ability to save ourselves any more than I believe we have the ability to, to lose ourselves. We belong to him. He keeps us. He holds us. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man will boast. It is a gift that God gives and nobody's going to boast about it. You know, one of the interesting things when we study scripture that we see, there's a, a section in Matthew chapter 25 that deals with the separation of the sheep and the goats. And when he separates the sheep from the goats to those on his right hand, they, they enter into the kingdom and they had no idea when they did anything to help him. And to those on the left hand, they don't enter into the kingdom. They go to to everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, because they didn't do any of those things. And they thought they did a lot. The Bible lays out for us that salvation is a gift of God, because men would like to boast about their abilities and how they earned, and they get this hierarchy. And we talked about the fact that legalism can creep in. It can creep in, it comes sneaking on, it looks all good and, and right from the outside, but it's, it's a damnable heresy that somehow I'm doing something. It's probably the number one way people tell you they're saved and they know they're going to heaven because I'm a good person. Really? Yeah, I do good things. Really? Because in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says there's no one good. So there's a problem. In Isaiah, he says our best is filthy rags. The best we can do is filthy rags. It doesn't earn us righteousness. It's a gift of God. And so our works are not something that we ought to be boasting about. It's not something that's going to bring faith. It's something that shows our faith. It shows the reality of our faith. Because Jesus did it all. So all to him I owe. Sin had brought a crimson stain, but what'd he do? He washed it white as snow. Jesus did it all. Not me. Jesus did it all. He did it everything. Everything that we needed. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, nor does it depend on you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. And then he builds on that concept in verse 10. We see these are the things that God works in us and through us in verse 10. Leading up to verse 10 is what God works for us. First, sin worked for us. Remember, first three verses, then God works for us. Then God works in us. Then God works through us. Listen, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. The Greek term is poema. 
That we are his poema. Poema, it's, it's the root that we get the word poem, but that's not really a, a great understanding of, of what it means. What it means is to be made, to be manufactured, to be put together. That we are his project. That we are, if you will, in the garage of, uni- of the universe, God the Father has us as a project. And the, what he works in us when we come to salvation is we become his project. And he begins to work in our lives. He begins to work in our lives. What's the scripture tell us that he does? Listen, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Uh, does all things cover everything? All in the Greek means? You guys are practically Greek scholars. All means all. All things become new. Where? In Christ. In Christ. Sin makes us dead. Christ makes us alive. And then he works in us. We become his project through which he builds a new creation out of the old. Kathy has shared with me before, said to me before, that she's thankful I'm not the same as the person that she married all those many years ago. 25 years ago, we got married. She's thankful that I'm not that same person. But you know, the reality is, I do not have the ability to make myself new. Any more than you have the ability to make yourself new. I don't care what the books say. There's only one way to be made new, and that's in Christ Jesus. He makes me new. I become his poema, his workmanship. The difference between Jackie today and Jackie 25 years ago is the hand of God. I got the fingerprints of the Lord all over my life. The the potter with the clay, right? The potter spit in the wheel. The clay sits on it. What did I do? I'm the lump of clay. What did I do? I just sit there. And it's even better if you just sit there and be quiet. <laughs> Sometimes I was screaming, I'll tell you. The potter's wheel's going around in circles. I get dizzy when we go around in circles. But that potter's wheel's going around in circles. And, and there the Lord is, sitting at that potter's wheel, making the wheel spin faster. Sticking his hand down in there and pulling out the junk. Doing his little surgery, taking the garbage out, shaping that, that jar, shaping that piece of pottery for who? For me? Shaping it for his good pleasure, right? So that he can, can utilize it. So I'm what he needs me to be. Man, he's doing this incredible work in us because we are his workmanship. We are his project. We are what God wants to do and, and how God wants to do it in us. And God continues this work in us for what goal? That we might become like His Son. That we might be like Him. That we would be conformed into His image. Romans 8.29 says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. For whom He knew, He did predestine that He might be conformed to the image of His Son. What, why are we God's workmanship? He's changing me into the image of His Son. Is He done? No. When's He done? When I see Him face to face. 
That's the end of it. When I see him face to face, I will be like him. I will be like him at that time. But for now, he's conforming me into his image. You know, the scripture says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable act of worship, that we present ourselves to him and he does this work. And do not be transformed to the image of this world, but be conformed to the image of his son by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 says that we put on the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. Being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took, came in the form of man, took on the form of a bondservant, provided for you and I the example. Now we want to follow him. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. Come on. Be conformed into my image, not transformed into the image of the world. Be like Jesus Christ. And that's what God does. That's what he does in us. For us, he wrought salvation, and he brings us to a relationship with him. But once we've been saved, he works in us to make us a new creation. And I think there's about four ways that I see that God does that. Four ways that God works in our life to change us, to conform us, to make us into his image. And the first way that I see is the word. It's through the word. Listen, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Scripture says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Faith comes by hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The word of God effectively works in us. When we receive the word of God as it is in truth, not the word of men, but the word of God. And we make that application. We take that doctrine and we are not just hearers only, but doers also. We receive what God has said and now we do. That's what the word of God does in our life. That's why it's so vital. It's so vital. Whenever kids would come to me when I was coaching football, they'd say, Coach, what do we need to do? We want to be better football players. What do I need to do in offseason? Which there isn't much of an offseason. At least it, for us, California, we played football from uh, May to December. So it's a kind of a long season. But when they'd come to me, I'd say, well, you, You're going to spend time in a weight room. We're going to make you bigger, faster, and stronger. Yeah, Coach, um, about that. You know, I want to play football, but... Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lift. I, I can't lift. Oh. Okay. But let me introduce you to this position. Left out. <laughs> you can sit right over here on this big chunk of wood, and you can watch. Because what's going to happen is because those other guys are in the weight room and they're working and on becoming bigger, faster, and stronger. They're putting in, making application to those things. They're going to grow. They're going to develop. They're going to become the players that are going to see the, the field. But folks, it's no different in our relationship with the Lord. If we're not 
going to spend time in his word. It's like not going to the weight room. It's like not exercising. It's like, it's like saying, I want to be a Christian, but I'm not going to do any of the things that I ought to do. I want to become a new creation. I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He's going to do it through his word. Through his word. He's also going to do it through worship. I can't even tell you how many times God has spoke to me through worship. And worship, we want to have that understanding. Guys, worship is not for our entertainment. We don't stand up and, and lead in a song for the, for the attitude of we want to try to entertain the masses so they feel good. No, this is a sacrifice of praise to God. It's what we give to Him. And it's what you join us in and we give it to Him. And we offer this sacrifice of praise to the Lord. And we come like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus and just looking up into His eyes. You'll wonder, why do people lift their hands? Because in the Psalms, the psalmist said, lift your hands unto the Lord. The picture is of a small child lifting his hands to his dad. Every one of us have had our kids do that to us. They come running over to us and Dad, pick me up. And they lift up their hands. And we reach down and we pick him up. And that's what the Lord does. He meets us in that place. How does he conform me into the image of his son? When I come before him in worship and I just open my heart up to him. You can or you don't have to lift your hands. You can, you can come to him in whatever way you're comfortable with coming to him. But you need to come to him in that attitude. In that spirit that says, God, here I am. And we're just offering up our praise to him. And he'll meet you in that place. It's not about what the song is, who the song's by, whether I like it or not. It's immaterial. This is my offering to God, not to, to me. It's my offering to him. So I lift that to him. He speaks to us in his word. He conforms us to his image. He conforms us into his image through worship. And then he conforms us into his image through prayer. Through prayer, he conforms us into his image. What do you mean? Listen, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly above and beyond what we ask or think. When we come to the Lord in prayer, it makes a difference. But Jackie, I don't really understand that whole prayer thing. Because we pray, but God's going to do... I mean, His will is going to be accomplished. So am I really able to change God's will? No, what you're able to do is be aligned with God's will. But how does prayer then really change things? Well, all I know is Daniel's prayer changed things, didn't it? Daniel prayed to the Lord and, and God sent His angel revealed His plan to Daniel. Daniel, here's what's going on. Here's why you're in captivity. Here's what's happening. God revealed his plan to Daniel, who was called greatly beloved of God. And his heart was, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer who's able to do abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Scripture goes on to say, according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church of Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. According to the work that works in us. When we pray, God works in us. When we pray, God works in us. I am his project. I'm his poema. He's building me, conforming me into the image of his son. And as he does that confirmation, as he builds me, 
He says, these are the tools I use, Jack. I'm going to use my word. I'm going to use worship. I'm going to use prayer. But guys, so often those are the very things we neglect every day. If I had a football player come to me and say, Jack, I'm going to be playing football for you. Excited about playing football, but I'm only going to work out one day a week. You might as well save that one day a week and eat popcorn. You need to be committed. I'm committed to the word of God. I'm committed to prayer. I'm committed to worship. That that becomes who I am, what I do. It's it's evident in my life. I'm committed to allowing these tools to work in my life. But listen, nobody's very excited about the fourth one. The fourth tool that God uses to conform us into the image of his son is suffering. Oh yeah, I know. I'm sorry. But it's there. The fourth tool that God uses in our life is suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, it says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Since you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. It says, listen, as you go through the suffering, the hurts, the, the, the pains in life, God says, I'm conforming you to the image of his son. What are you talking about? Well, you guys remember Moses, right? Moses, who was to be cast into the Nile River and eaten by the crocodiles. But Moses' mom and dad had faith in God. The beautiful thing about their faith, they believed and trusted, right? How do we know they trusted? Because they took Moses and they put him in this ark of bulrushes and they laid him in the Nile River and they watched it float down the river and trusted that God would care for him. And it would just so happen that Pharaoh's daughter found that and that Pharaoh's daughter decided to raise that child as her own and that Moses' sister, following along, watching what was happening to the basket, she said to, to Pharaoh's daughter, Hey, would you like to have a nursemaid? I know a woman who could nurse that baby for you. And she went back and got her mom, and her mom came and nursed her own child in Pharaoh's house and got paid for it. That's how God works. When you have faith, when you trust Him, well, Moses was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, wasn't he? So, of course, he had all knowledge that he needed for that day. He was at the height of understanding, and he came out and tried to deliver the people of God. He wanted to deliver his people. So he killed a, a, an Egyptian guard. And two Hebrew guys basically said they're going to turn him in for it, and he took off. 
Ran out into the backside of the desert, the Bible says. And on the backside of the desert, what did he find? He found a big pile of sheep with a little girl shepherd. And as all good stories like this would go, he becomes her knight in shining armor. They get married. He becomes a shepherd. So he's for 40 years, 40 years, he's a shepherd on the backside of the desert. 40 years learning to be somebody. 40 years learning to be nobody. And then 40 years of God showing him what he can do with a nobody. What God can do with the training that he did. Did Moses suffer? Man, there were things that Moses suffered through his life. But God used that suffering to what? Conform him into the image of his son. Well, maybe that's not a good enough example. What about Joseph? Remember Joseph had to dream... One of of Israel's sons, Jacob's kids, he had a dream that one day he was going to rule over the people, and they're thinking, oh, well, I don't know, you know, I think you're crazy. And his brothers got mad at him, what did they do? Sold him into slavery. He got sold into slavery, but apparently slavery wasn't bad enough for Joe. Joseph was was excelling as a slave. He was becoming the, the master of his master's house. And then his master's wife accused him of, of uh, rape, in essence, or an attempted rape. And so they put him in prison. And in prison, he excelled as a prisoner, so much so that the warden would put him in charge. You ever seen that happen? Not very often. Did Joseph suffer? Sure he did. Did the sufferings that Joseph went through, did it conform him to the image of Christ? Yeah, he becomes a great example of who Jesus is on the pages of Scripture. And then he tells in Genesis chapter 50 this. What you intended for evil, God what? Meant for good. What the devil uses to try to destroy us, God uses to conform us into the image of his son. That's the difference between trial and temptation. God tempts no man, but the trial comes. Temptation is what the devil brings to destroy. A trial is what God brings to work good in your life, to conform you to the image of his son. So we see this change. We're his poema. We're his workmanship. We're that which God is chiseling upon us and making us into the image of his son. And he's going to use the word, and he's going to use worship, and he's going to use prayer, and he's going to use suffering. He's going to use all those things. And he's going to conform us into his image, his poema, his workmanship. That's what he's doing in us. He's working this in us to make us like Christ. For the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead makes us alive, works in our life, does incredible things in us. But then God always also works through us. God works in us, making us into the image of his son. But he works through us. Look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God did what? Prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. God works in us, conforming us into the image of his son. He works through us in good good works. These works are two things. The first thing is they're good. 
their good works, their things that, that are going to, or that God has called us. That means that God didn't save us and call us and equip us for us to sit still and do nothing. God did that for us to do something. All of us. Every one of us. Not just people who are in the ministry. Every single one of us are called His workmanship created to do good works. To do good works. We're to do something with what Jesus Christ has given us. We're to accomplish something through what Jesus Christ has done in us. Listen, Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light so shine among men that people see your what? Good works. Did the good works save us? No, the good works should follow us, right? Good works should be in our wake. Good works should be there with us. Listen, Calvin said it this way. It is faith alone that justifies But faith that justifies is never alone. We are created, a new creation in Christ Jesus, to work, to do, to go forward, to go be whatever it is that God's called us to be. What do you say in Philippians 1.20? According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also... Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's saying, listen, no matter what I do, live or die, Christ is magnified by what I do. By what I do. That I'm doing something. That I am to be out there. You know, the beautiful thing when we look at Revelation chapter 2 and we see the letter, uh, the first letter to the seven churches, which is to Ephesus. Man, Jesus has a lot of good things to say about what they're doing they had a problem they left their first love but he didn't condemn them for what they were doing what they were doing was good the problem was why they were doing it they had forgot we can do that sometimes can't we we can get all about doing the work we can get all about serving maybe you're teaching in sunday school and you're you're part of the rotation teaching in sunday school and as you're teaching in sunday school you start to get burned out why do you get burned out because you forget why you're doing it I'm doing it because I love Jesus Christ, an opportunity to do good work, something that God's called me to. Man, I want to be busy doing the things that God wants me to do. We lose sight of that, we get burnt out. It just becomes work, like another job. Who needs another job? But when it's that good work, that thing which Jesus Christ has called us to, whether by life or by death, Paul said, I want to magnify the Lord in whatever I do, in everything that I do. I want to magnify Him in what I do. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is able Hey, God wants to work in us. God wants to do good works through you and I. But He's able to do it. God's the one who's going to do that work. He's going to work that perfect work. But it's for good works that we would do something. 
God did for us salvation. Doesn't cost us anything. All we have to do is receive it. Put our faith and trust in Him. Our response to that being made into the image of His Son is that we're supposed to be doing something. What am I supposed to do, Jackie? Well, that's the second part of it. What's it say? We're supposed to do two things. Good works that are what? Prepared by Him. That means God has a plan for you. Specifically, you, individually, you. He has a good work for you to do, a good work that God wants to accomplish in your life. Listen, the unbeliever, he's going to walk through the world according to the course, the winds of this world, right? Being guided by the flesh, by the world, and by Satan. That's what we were before we were saved. But then, Christ did for us. He worked the work of salvation. He made us alive. He raised us up with Him in the heavenly places. He's given us these incredible blessings. And then He conforms us into the image of His Son so that we would do good works that He has prepared for us. We should be doing something. The unbeliever doesn't know what to do. The believer, he wants to do what God has laid out for him, what God has directed, what God is showing him. Listen, it's important that we realize that that is shown to you and I through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he will reveal to us that work or works that he's calling us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You'll remember it. But as it is written... Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Lord, I want to know what it is you want for me to do. Do you think God's will for your life is top secret and He doesn't want you to know what it is? God wants to reveal His will. But that revealing of His will, that working out in good works, that doing the things that God has prepared for us before, begins with, for we are His workmanship. That God is working in us. He's a project, and He uses tools. He uses the Word. He uses worship. He uses prayer. He uses suffering. But if we're neglecting three of the four... We're missing out on what God could be accomplishing in our life because we're neglecting the Word. We're neglecting worship. We're neglecting those opportunities to do those things. We're neglecting prayer. And our eyes are shielded to what God wants to work in our life in suffering for like Joseph's brothers, all they could see was the evil that they had done. Not that God meant it for good. This is what God is working in us. What God wants to do through us. What God has done for us. There's no comparison to what sin did to us. Sin made us dead. He made us alive. Sin robs us. But in Christ, He gives us, pours out His riches upon us. It's no comparison. And he wants to make us into his image. To be open to to allow God to do that amazing work in us and through us. In us, he conforms us through us that we would go and do what God's calling us to do. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this opportunity, Father, to open your word, to look, to see. God, I pray that we would understand, that we would take this, the understanding of our wealth in Christ, that you chose us, that you elect us, that you redeemed us, that you forgive us, that you saved us, that once we were dead and you have made us alive, once we were lost and you have found us, once we had nothing, but now you have given us everything. You save us. By grace we have been saved. Through faith. Our belief and trust coming together in you. It's not something I have to work up within me, but something that you give me. And when I do that, I become a project of God. He's conforming me into the image of his son. He's making me to be like Jesus. And that's what I want. I want to be like Jesus. And he, he's going to allow the word to be poured in me and, and prayer and worship and, and even suffering. But God, as you do all those things, the truth is I become more like Jesus and I'm prepared to do the work that you have called me to. Father, every one of us in this place, in this room this morning are called to do something all of us appointed unto good works not to earn salvation to earn our right to be here but as a result of that salvation in our life and the the outpouring the working close of faith is that we'll do that work that you have ordained for me and we'll never find the satisfaction that we seek when we're not or if we're not doing that which you've called us to. Lord, it's my prayer this morning. And Father, as we come to you in worship, as we press into you in this time, Lord God, we ask that you would reveal your will in each person's life, their direction. Father, what you're, what you're calling them unto. Because the truth is, Jesus said, the harvest is ready. The fields are white with harvest, but the workers are few. There are few workers, few who have come to that place in their life where they're willing to move forward and do the things God's called them to do. Make us willing, Lord. Make us willing to be who you've called us to be, to do what you're calling us to do. Make us willing, Father, to take a look and see where we're at. Where are we on this scale? Am I still dead in my trespasses and sin? Then I need to to come to understand what God did for me and receive salvation. And if I have received that salvation, I understand what God's done for me. Then I need to understand what God's doing in me, making me into the image of his son. If I understand what God's doing in me, then I need to open up my heart and allow God to work through me. And do the work that you're calling me to do. Father, we just ask that your spirit would move. Father, that you would indeed call us, lead us, direct us, guide us to be who you're calling us to be. That we might glorify you in the life that we live for you. The life that you gave us. We give you all the thanks for it and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.